go ahead and jump straight in and let me pray for our time. Lord, bless our study in your word tonight. And we pray we have a profitable time learning more about you and the, the church and the spiritual gifts. May it be a blessed time and, and teach us much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, just to get things started here, well, one of these days I might learn my lesson. I, I might stop telling you guys that we're just going to study something once because all too often people prevail on me and we end up coming back for a little bit more. So that's what's happened. You know, most of July we were off, took a little bit of break, and then uh, when we came back from our longer uh, Doctrines of Grace study, which we will get back to soon, uh, but we had Oliver teach after we came back, and then just kind of since we were already out of the swing of things, I figured it would be a great time to finally plug in a little, one little lesson that I'd been meaning to teach for a while, since so many people have been asking me questions about this topic, namely the charismatic gifts. And so in a, in a kind of random fashion over several months, fielding a lot of questions, uh, good questions about the sign gifts and charismatic movement, and eventually just started telling people, you know, I'm just going to teach on it, we'll, we'll find a weekend or a week sooner or later, and I'll just do a lesson on it and answer, hopefully, uh, everyone's questions, just plug it all in. So that happened last week. We had a, a perfect opportunity. I planned on just a single lesson explaining our view of the sign gifts, basically explaining why we're not a charismatic church. Many churches have been persuaded by the charismatic movement, but we have not. And so we just did a little Bible study on why, why, why that is, why we would take issue. And that was supposed to be it. I told you it's just going to be a, a single lesson, and that really was my intention. You may have noticed how fast I was talking last week, because I really was trying to cram in a lot into that one little 55-minute episode. But the lesson spurred a lot of good follow-up questions. And a lot of people asking me to elaborate on some of the things I said last week. Then I did have plenty more in the notes. And so I figured, well, I guess we'll try one more. And so we're back tonight just for, I really am planning, just one more follow-up lesson on what we learned last week. Uh, more on why we're not a charismatic church. Either way, you know, here we are. It's what we're going to do tonight. I trust we will get back to that Doctrines of Grace study next week. But I, I guess I can't promise, but I really do believe that. Anyway, there's certainly more we can say about this issue, and tonight we're going to do some of that follow-up, answering even more questions and explaining even further, or just our view, why we were, we're not of that persuasion, in contrast to a lot of churches out there today. And hopefully this will suffice in giving you a little more equipping in the matter, what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, hoping you understand more about at least what we believe here at this church and why, according to Scripture. At the same time, I don't really apologize too much for coming back on this topic because it is a very important and significant topic of our day, especially. A hundred years ago, this was a non-issue. Before 1900, there, there were no Pentecostal or Charismatic churches. But in the past hundred years, especially the past 50 years, it's become an issue, really a divide in the Christian church, where one side has to be wrong. I mean, it's just a clear divide. One has it right, one has it wrong. There's not a lot of room for middle ground in the sense of the, the sign gifts, for example. If non-charismatics are wrong, they're completely missing out on the greater gifts of the Holy Spirit, which means they really are second-class Christians who are living without the, the greater power of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. I would want to know that. And if charismatics are wrong, however, then they've been really duped. They're, they're guilty of propagating a system that's given a lot of people false hope and borne false testimony about the works and words of God. So it's actually a pretty significant issue, a pretty significant divide. From our perspective, we, and I trust yours as well, we, we just want to know the truth. I trust that's what you want. 
As we discussed last week, you know, we, we love the sign gifts. I, I marvel at God's power through the miraculous gifts of the New Testament of tongues and prophecy and healing. What, what a marvel. What a profound display of God's power to an unbelieving world. And if these gifts are still being given to Christians today, like, I'd want to know about that. I'd want to, if I'm in the wrong, I would want to change and come into accord with the power of the Spirit if that's truly God's plan for the church. Shouldn't we want to know that? But at the same time, if we're correct in our understanding of Scripture, which leads us to believe the gifts have ceased, I would want to know that as well. I'd want to be supremely convinced of this one way or another, because either way, there's, that means just there's a lot of people out there on one side or the other that are deceived, maybe well-meaning, caught up in just tradition or a system or whatever it's going to be, but they just have, have it wrong. For my sake, I want to be discerning and careful in all things. And for the sake of, of charismatics, I would want to minister them in real love with the truth, at least as we understand it, that they can be freed from their error and some of the hazards of this movement. Either way, our call is to test all things with Scripture. Isn't that fair? Isn't that what we certainly believe here at this church as a Bible church? And to be discerning about all things. And that's, that's all this study is about. We're just aiming to take a critical look at a very significant movement today in the charismatic and Pentecostal world and just to test it with Scripture, see if it checks out. Well, it's in this regard, though, that last week at least, well, and this week as well, we, we do take issue with the charismatic movement precisely because it, it does not accord with Scripture in, in so many ways. Last week, our study was built around two basic points which teach why we are not a charismatic church, why we're not convinced. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I, do, I did record it actually, because come see me for the audio if you weren't here. You probably want to listen to that, because that was the main, I guess, meat, the main case of it. Just in summary, two basic points. One, the, the practice of sign gifts today does not match the practice in the New Testament. And it's just such a fundamental flaw. You look at the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healing, some of the, the main three sign gifts, defined and exercised in the New Testament by the book. That's just not what you see going on today. Instead, what you see passed off as the sign gifts has changed. Prophecy, as we learned, it's no longer the infallible direct revelation from God, but it's a general impression from the Lord that can be wrong, can have error, it can be mistaken. Tongues is no longer the divine enablement to speak a real human language previously unlearned, but it's now just a, a heavenly prayer language that's really actually not a language at all, but just a random assortment of syllables and consonants. And then healing is no longer the divine enablement to heal the sick immediately, fully, undeniably, but it's, it's just the opposite, really. And often it's actually just confused with praying over the sick, which we, we love, but that's just not the gift of healing. So overall, it's, it's really as simple as we don't believe in the sign gifts today. In large part, we just don't see them today, that they're not in practice. They haven't been in practice as defined and practiced in the New Testament since the era of the apostles. Charismatics, are, they're doing something. It's just not, at least what I see, to be the sign gifts in the New Testament. And I believe the burden of proof is on them to verify that they actually are possessing and exercising the, the true sign gifts as defined and exercised in the New Testament. So simply put, what we see coming out of this movement, just by definition, it's not biblical. It doesn't accord with 
what these gifts are defined as to be in the Bible and exercised in the Bible. That was part one of last week. Part two was we also made the case of, of the purpose for the gifts, that we actually can perfectly explain why they've been absent after the apostolic era. Signs and wonders are actually very rare in history. Just a few people in a few time periods in biblical history actually possess these gifts, these abilities. And they always came with the same purpose. Through Bible study, we verified from Moses to Jesus to the apostles, these gifts were always given as signs. Signs of God's power to authenticate a messenger as having come from God, as speaking for God, and validating a spokesman. This point is found in Scripture over and over again. And specifically in the New Testament, we actually don't expect everything that took place in the New Testament church to to be going on today. Things today are are not going to be like they were in the early church in every single instance. That's because at the very least, that was the apostolic era. And that era is over. So naturally, some things have changed. Not everything, but some things have changed. What's ironic is that most charismatics will actually admit that some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Most will admit that the gift of uh, uh, apostleship has ceased, that it was limited to the first century. And there are some who actually believe apostleship is still around. But majority will admit apostleship has ceased. That's a first century gift. All of them should admit that the gift of inspiration has ceased, so to speak, namely that that work of the Holy Spirit and inspiring written revelation has ceased. That's a pretty significant change, though. Another aspect limited to the apostolic era. Some things have changed because God in that era was laying the foundation for this new thing called the church with a new covenant, all this new revelation. And it's natural that after that foundational era was over, like Ephesians teaches, we saw some of those verses, that some things would change thereafter. And what charismatics fail to realize, though, is that the signs of the apostles and prophets ended with them on purpose. As God was no longer giving new revelation, well, he's no longer giving the authenticating signs that came with the apostles and prophets. As the New Testament was complete and the new era of revelation was given, this new testament, which just means new covenant. It's the revelation of the new covenant. Well, it's only natural that God stopped giving the signs that authenticated the messengers, the authoritative messengers of this new covenant revelation. And so we actually find very good reason, makes perfect sense, that with the passing of the apostles and prophets, as that era came to a close, that the gifts closed with them. And that actually explains why we can trace in the New Testament, as time went on, the gifts were fading out in practice, and why the leadership of the church transitions from apostles and prophets to pastors and elders. Anyway, that was all last week. We did obviously a lot more Bible study there. And again, if you need the audio, come see me. I left off, however, giving you kind of like a rapid fire ending of several other reasons. We would take issue with the movement that we find trouble and problems in just like a real Cliff Notes fashion. And that's what's, that, that was what prompted a lot of you with further questions. And so what we're going to do tonight basically is just elaborate on some of these I guess you could say secondary reasons why we're, we're not a charismatic church, going back to that ultimate question. 
If you want to keep things super simple, just stick with last week, get those notes and just reflect on that. That's the, the main case. But at the same time, there are several other secondary reasons we would take issue with the charismatic movement. And so just for your, your further equipping to answer further questions, we're going to study them tonight. In specific, seven, seven more reasons we're not a charismatic church. So here we go. Number one, the problem of church history. The problem of church history. We still have a lot of ground to cover, so I still might talk a little fast. Uh, we're not going to be... A, super extensive in any of these areas. But suffice it to say, the burden of proof is on charismatics to explain why these most significant gifts, the highest gifts of the Holy Spirit, have been absent from the church for its recorded history up until about 1900. Just seriously, from the early church, after the apostles, to the Middle Ages, to the Reformation, to the Great Awakening, the church at large has not known the signed gifts. Does this mean the work of the Holy Spirit has been absent from church history? Yet so many have been saved that the gospel has gone throughout all the earth. And some charismatics will respond saying, you know, the church in those eras, they weren't looking for the gifts or they weren't, you know, favorable to the gifts. And so they were like hamstringing the Holy Spirit through their lack of faith. But that's unconvincing to me because 1 Corinthians twelve eleven teaches... The Holy Spirit gives people gifts as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that. It's not up to you to determine or request a gift. He gives gifts as he wills. So I guess, how do you explain the Spirit's unwillingness to give gifts for those 1,800 years of church history? At the very least, I've not heard any adequate explanation for the absence of the gifts throughout all church history. Now, at the same time, this is a very much a secondary reason, let's be fair, because church history is not our test of truth. It's not. Scripture is. We've already made the bulk of our biblical case last week. But at the very least, it's worth stating that the evidence of the church, for whatever it's worth, the evidence of church history fully affirms the cessationist position. Now, number two, the problem of Pentecostal history. Number two, the problem of Pentecostal history. Now, if we would say that charismatics need to explain the absence of the sign gifts for the past 1900 years, I guess it's fair for them to say we need to explain their supposed reawakening in the past 100 years. Now, how, how do we explain how they've come back in the past 100 years? Where did this movement come from? But at the very least, to me, the history of the, the modern sign gifts, their exercise is quite telling. So let me give you the, the quick version of that, give you a little background. It stems from this New Testament concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've heard of it, I'm sure, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout all church history, this baptism of the Holy Spirit has been taken, to be a, a, taken as a reference to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. At salvation, God regenerates you by the Spirit empowers you by the Spirit and gives you entrance into the body of Christ by the Spirit. But the point is, this all takes place in the moment of salvation. This doesn't come after. In the, in the very moment of salvation, all these things take place. But in the 18th century, things started to change a little bit. There's this thing called the holiness movement coming from, from the, the roots of John Wesley 
taught this idea called Christian perfectionism, which stated that Christians could be truly sinless. In other words, Wesley taught through a, a second work of grace, after salvation, a second work of grace, a Christian could be perfected in the sense that he would attain complete sanctification, no longer even sinning, totally devoid from the lust of the flesh. And this was through, like I said, a second work of grace. Well, in the 19th century, right on the heels of this, in the very next generation, someone came along named Charles Finney. And he was the one who first equated Wesley's concept of a second work of grace with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Finney taught that at some time after salvation, you needed God to do a a second work in you. And he taught that second work was this baptism of the Holy Spirit. That would make you truly spiritual. That would, you would reach a, a higher plane of Christian experience with this baptism. Now, as you can imagine, this is the theological foundation. These are the theological roots of Pentecostalism. And so as the very next generation, this all just, you can trace the generations. You had a man named Charles Parham, and he challenged his students to look, to seek for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, And he was the one who, at least that we can trace in history, first associated speaking in tongues as the necessary outward expression of receiving the baptism. Because how do you know you get it? How do you know you've you've received this second work of grace? And he taught, well, read book of Acts, they speak in tongues after the Spirit came upon them, so this is it. So he challenged his students to seek it. This took place, place at Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. And at 7 p.m. on New Year's Day, 1901, one of his students reportedly received the Spirit and spoke in Chinese. Parham believed this to be the restoration of the Pentecostal power found in Acts. And so he started spreading this teaching around, seeking to duplicate the, the experience. Well, a couple years later, a man named William Seymour came under Parham's teaching. And Seymour then moved to Los Angeles And while leading a small church service at the Azusa Street Mission on April 9th, 1906, Seymour himself spoke in tongues. This sparked what's what's been known as the Azusa Street Revival. You heard of that? And this has been taken as the beginning of American Pentecostalism. Pentecostal churches after this started popping up all over. Assemblies of God was founded in 1914. Foursquare Movement, 1927. Here's what's, to me, though, telling. And you could learn a lot about the history. There, there's a lot. We're just doing that. a quick version. But Parham, the, 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 one of the founding fathers, he himself later visited Seymour to check out the Azusa Street Revival. But he came to reject this revival because he believed they went too far in the extremes of fanaticism and that their tongues wasn't even a real human language. It was just chattering, jabbering, sputtering, no language at all. Also, Parham criticized Seymour because he was integrating seances and the occult into these services. So Parham, one of the founding fathers, rejected what, what is known to be this great revival, the Azusa Street Revival. At the same time, though, later on, Parham himself was rejected by the greater movement as uh, his reputation came out for sexual immorality and homosexuality. So this is what I meant last week when I talked about some of the suspect origins of the charismatic movement. Charismatic, that's a broad term, but it really started with the Pentecostal movement 
in the 1900s. The founding, you know, the two, one of, I would say two of the main founding fathers of this movement, respectively, associated with the occult, homosexuality, that doesn't speak well for their teaching and practice. Now, again, this is a, this is a secondary reason, to be fair. But at the same time, the, 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 the person uh, of the founder of a movement is an issue, right? We use this argument against the Mormons, do we not? They have suspect origins with immoral founders. And so to me, it's at least some form of fair game. It's a valid secondary reason. Just at least it's going to make me hold and suspect the movement that comes out of such people. Because we know that God teaches for a man to be qualified as a teacher or a prophet. It's not just what you say or do. It's also who you are. Your, your character matters just as much. And it's what validates a lot of what you have to say. Well, from here on out, you can trace more of Pentecostal history yourself. In the 1960s, Pentecostalism infiltrated mainline denominations in that birth. What's generally referred to as the charismatic movement is no longer stuck to Pentecostalism, but it's just all churches now, any denomination, you can find it. But in my estimation, from the beginning, though, from Parham's class of students to people today, I see a group of people desperate for an experience. People were desperate to experience God desperate for something they, they can feel and not just read about. Realize in the early 1900s, the world was becoming more postmodern. Truth was devalued. Experience was everything. And so I'm not surprised at all that this movement took off and found a wide audience. This was a time when the arguments of evolution were hammering down the church. The inerrancy of scripture was being questioned and doubted. The truth of Christianity was in doubt. And so to me, it's no wonder that a movement offering experience, you can experience God's power, came in to fill this void of these cold, dead, dying churches. Not surprising. And it still does the same thing today. We're even more of a postmodern world where it's not about truth, it's about experience. Well, that's number two. Number three, the problem of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The problem of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's been significant. Let's talk about this concept. It is a biblical concept, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We said earlier, the Charismatics, really actually this is more of a Pentecostal distinction. They believe it doesn't take place at salvation, sometime after salvation. They acknowledge that all Christians receive the Spirit in a limited sense at salvation, but they believe you need another experience, a greater filling of the Spirit to receive greater power and attain a higher spirituality. This baptism must be sought after, and it's always accompanied by speaking in tongues. That's the necessary evidence you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is kind of mainline Pentecostal doctrine. They get this idea primarily from Acts 2, where the Feast of Pentecost, the disciples receive the Spirit, spoken tongues. They receive the baptism of the Spirit, filled with power, spoken tongues. Carries Max or like I said, Pentecostals, teach that this was a momentous experience in the life of the disciples. And we should be expecting the same thing today. We should be baptized by the Spirit sometime after salvation, receiving greater power, evidencing it by speaking in tongues. Charismatics believe this experience is supported by the fact that three other times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came on people in a special way. And that's true, Acts 8. Acts 10, Acts 19, three more instances where people, groups of people receive the Holy Spirit, 
sometimes speaking in tongues, sometimes not. And they interpret these instances, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as what they call a power encounter with the Spirit, resulting in believers becoming empowered by God to, to live higher lives, more spiritual lives. The purpose of spirit baptism is to give believers a greater experience of God's presence and God's power. And it's largely tied into experience. You're experiencing more of God's presence and power. So that's basically, you know, the, the gist of where they come from. In my estimation, though, this interpretation of spirit baptism and the event of Pentecost is totally wrong. And let me explain this to you, at least my take. What you have to realize is the event of Pentecost was not just some experience. It was fundamentally tied to this new covenant salvation work of Christ. Pentecost is at the heart of Christ's finished work. Probably haven't thought about that before, but think about this. How would you define the, the, the different aspects of Christ's finished work of salvation? We would say, well, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Pentecost is the, the next and last aspect of his finished work. The Spirit's coming. It's not a secondary experience. It's part and parcel with Christ's finished work. The coming of the Spirit that we see in Acts 2 signifies the beginning of new covenant salvation, just like God promised. It's the fulfillment of that Ezekiel 36 promise where God would send his Spirit to indwell believers, to empower them, that's true, for right living. But at the same time, Pentecost, that event, is not an experience to be repeated over and over again. It's a once-for-all event, part of God's redemptive plan. And it's no more repeatable than the death of Jesus on the cross. It was the beginning of the church. Now, if that's true, you would say, okay, but then what about, you know, those three other times in Acts where the Spirit came upon people in a special way? I thought it's not repeatable. What's that all about? That's crystal clear in the book of Acts, if you just read the book of Acts. Remember what Jesus said right before Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Remember, God was changing a lot with the new covenant, the coming of the Messiah. Things were changing. One of the biggest changes, the throwing open of the gates, the people of God no longer tied to one ethnicity, But the church was for all nations, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles in one body. That was mind-blowing for the Jews, of course. Remember, Acts 2, the church begins, the Spirit comes, and it's a group of Jews. The church begins, and it's entirely 100% formed of Jewish believers, right? You get that? But then in Acts chapter 8, a group of Samaritans comes to believe in the gospel. They preach, they believe in Jesus. This is Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. But as they believe, what happens? It says they receive the Spirit without speaking in tongues, by the way. But why, why is this? Well, was this simply an experience these Samaritans got to enjoy? Like this is just some, something for them? No. 
God was indicating by sending the Spirit on this special occasion that these once hated Samaritans were now to be accepted into the body of Christ. And so Peter and John realized, well, how can we refrain from extending fellowship to the Samaritans? They have the same Spirit as we do now. And so it signaled the entrance of this new people group into the church. Momentous. That's actually the main function of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism signifies one's entrance into the church by the Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12.13. It defines it. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Charismatics talk a lot about Spirit baptism in Acts, but they shy away from this one because it's a problem. Whatever this baptism is, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 makes clear it's for all believers, happens at the moment of salvation. But that's in direct contradiction to what they believe. And there's more. You get to Acts chapter 10, for example. And now it's a group of Gentiles who come to believe in Jesus. The Spirit comes upon them. They do speak in tongues as an outward sign. Signifying what? Signifying that God was now accepting even Gentiles into his church. It's just like Jesus said, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles would bear witness of Jesus in Judea, to Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. Each time the Spirit came and gave a sign indicating to the apostles that the church, the church's doors were open, just like Jesus had said. And these people were in the church as they had the same spirit as them. So to some, this whole idea of the baptism of the Spirit in Acts as being some sort of special blessing to give people an experience or a power encounter, it's just way off. Pentecostals, it's ironic, they don't make too much of Pentecost. They make too little of Pentecost. They treat it like it's just an experience. That's devaluing Pentecost. They reduce it to some sort of power encounter with the Holy Ghost that enables them to do great things. But what God was actually doing through the Spirit in Acts was far greater than what we see supposedly going on today. God was beginning his new covenant program. And what happened at Pentecost was the capstone to Christ's atoning work. It cannot nor should not be repeated today. Now, sadly, Pentecostals especially make speaking in tongues the essential sign of having received a special filling of the Holy Spirit. It's an unbiblical teaching. It ends up creating, though, two classes of Christians, the haves and the have-nots. You either got it or you don't. There's a super spiritual class. They've got the spirit. They've got the real spirit. They speak in tongues, and they're the spiritual elites. And those who don't, they just, you just don't know better. The owner of my neighbor's house, they rent it. But she's like this, and just casually, she, I don't think she knows much about me, although she knows I'm a pastor. Um, just talked to her one time, and she just casually mentioned, she goes to Assemblies of God Church, and like, very disparaging towards people who don't have the spirit. Like, well, they just don't know better. They're just really missing out on, on our, you know, what they have, like this greater power, greater experience. It creates this two-class system. What's troubling here is for people caught up in the movement, it creates this intense pressure for people to do what? To speak in tongues. 
to prove they've arrived, they're spiritual, they're included, they're, they're in, they're not left out. Nobody wants to be left out. And I can't tell you, I've talked to so many people, one after another, telling me the same thing. They're in the movement, they've come out, and they confess. They just went along with the flow, and, and they just started uttering some sounds, not hard to do, just to be in, to feel in. And they felt in, but this really is a, a problem. It leads to number four, a fourth issue we would take. The prevalence of false signs and wonders. The prevalence of false signs and wonders. Look, you know, the Bible warns us against false prophets. It says the church will be plagued with not a few, but many false prophets. How do you identify a false prophet? Well, three ways. False signs, immoral living, false teaching. False signs, immoral living, false teaching. And And in points four, five, and six, we're going to see this characterizes at least the the essential leadership of the charismatic church. False signs, immoral living, false teaching. Let's start with false signs. What I find extremely troubling with this movement, like I said last week, we're in an age of cell phone videos. And there's still no documented, undeniable proof. It shouldn't be hard. Of, of the blind seeing, the quadriplegic walking, the amputee's limb being regrown, AIDS being cured. Where is it? should be on the news. should be everywhere. If it's undeniable. Jesus healed, and it was undeniable. Unbelievers had no choice but to at least say, well, he's got power. But to, on the flip side, there's just no shortage of videos documenting false signs and frauds. Just... Too many examples to count. I'll just give you a few. 1980s, famed evangelist Peter Popoff claimed to heal the sick, and he prophetically received personal details about them. But later he was exposed that he was receiving audio transmissions in his ear from his wife, who was relaying information to him about people in the crowd as they gathered their life story. Also, he planted healthy people and staffers in the crowd in wheelchairs and crutches that he would heal and, of course, get money. In 1967... Supposed faith healer Catherine Coleman held a a healing service in Philadelphia. A physician, William Nolan, he then conducted a case study on 23 people who claimed to have been healed at at that service. His long-term follow-up found that none were cured. One woman thought, believed, she was cured of her spinal cancer. And so at the beckoning of Coleman, she she took off her, her back brace and ran across the stage believing she was healed, the next day her spine collapsed, and a few months later she died. The list goes on. It's just, search for yourself, there's really no end to such a list. The same goes, not just for false healings, but false prophecies. You can find another endless list of documented false prophecies by just about every charismatic leader. For example, back in 1998, Prophet Harley Hickling prophesied, this is after Clinton was impeached, He prophesied Clinton would either resign or leave office, and that Al Gore would not even be a a candidate for the presidential office in 2000. That was his specific prophecy. Well, Clinton neither resigned nor left office, and Gore became the Democratic presidential nominee in 2000. And someone earlier today was actually telling me they read a bunch of prophecies associated with the eclipse, which, of course, didn't come true. And again, that list goes on and on and on. Where's the accountability? Why aren't all these false prophets immediately, at the instance they get something wrong, disowned by the movement? You guys know, in the Old Testament, the the penalty for this was death. 
It's, it's, it's nonchalant today because it's casual. It's an impression from the Lord. Everyone's wrong here and there. But look, God doesn't take it lightly when people claim to be speaking direct revelation from him, but they're really not. To God, this is actually quite a big deal. And like I said, the list goes on. Challenge you to do your own research. You'll find no documentation for real signs and wonders, but endless of false. Number five, the prevalence of immorality. The prevalence of immorality. The moral failure and disqualification of charismatic leaders has reached critical levels every year. It seems like another few come out of being disqualified. They they usually don't step down. Maybe they'll do a little rehab for a little while, and then they're back in the pulpit pretty soon. But just one after another, sexual reasons, financial reasons, and most often from charismatic camps. Again, to be fair, every denomination, all branches of Christianity have their fair share of disqualified leaders. So again, these are secondary reasons, to be fair. But look, even writers for Charisma magazine have acknowledged that for charismatics, this is an epidemic problem. So that's their own magazine saying we have an immorality problem with our leadership. That's a big deal. In 1986, Jimmy Swaggart revealed the adulterous affairs of fellow televangelists Marvin Gorman and Kim Baker. In turn, they hired some private investigators and discovered that Swaggart himself was hiring prostitutes. He stepped down for a year, but three years later, he was caught by police with another prostitute. Amy Semple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Church, was an adulteress who faked her own death to run away with her lover, a very famous one. Lonnie Frisbee, who was involved in the rise of the Calvary Chapel and Vineyard movements, was later disowned for secretly being homosexual, died from AIDS in 1993. 2006, Ted Haggard, leader of the charismatic evangelical movement, resigned after it came out he'd been paying a homosexual escort for drugs and sex for years. The list is just too long. It just goes on and on and on. And it's not just sexual morality. There's greed, materialism, corruption. This is typically the televangelists who, as you know, prey off their audience, promising health and wealth. And yet, I mean, for them, really, they're getting health, they're wealthy off of this. If you just sow a little seed of money, right? If you make an investment, sow this seed in the form of a check in this amount, they prophesy this fourfold increase, this tenfold increase on your life. You just got to take that step of faith and send them some money. And it amazes me, but then again, it doesn't. Just so many people do it. And they get rich. Everyone else remains poor. These televangelists rake in million-dollar profits. They live in mega mansions, private jets, fleets of cars. I mean, the evidence is out there. It's so corrupt that even the U.S. Senate in 2007 investigated Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Eddie Long, Joyce Meyer, and Randy and Paula White for this type of uh, corruption. When it comes to this immorality, I've always just had a very simple question. If these people claim to have a double portion of the Holy Spirit, so to speak, why aren't they twice as holy? It's called the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of holiness. God gave us the Spirit, not that we can do parlor tricks. We were given the Spirit primarily to share in God's holiness, to bear the image of Christ. That's why it's called the Holy Spirit. So again, it's secondary, but to me still quite troubling that this characterizes so much of at least the leadership of this movement. Number six, the prevalence of false teaching. The prevalence of false teaching. 
Again, I'm really not suggesting that every charismatic Christian is a false teacher or is unsaved. No. There is a mainline moderate movement. They're moderate in their practice. They're orthodox in their doctrine. They try and be by the book. I appreciate that. I really do. But at the same time, this movement, though, this same movement has spawned really the vast majority of false teaching that's arisen in the past hundred years. Take, for example, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. At least according to church history, that's been settled for quite some time, right? You know, about the third and fourth century, those debates were going on. This, this should have been settled. But with the advent of these new prophets who have new words from the Lord, you get a lot of new teaching featuring old heresies. Christological and atonement heresies abound from charismatic circles. Some examples, these are all coming from main leaders. Jesus did not come to earth as God in human flesh. Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus died spiritually in hell. He died on the cross physically, but he actually made atonement in hell after he died. That's where he really paid penalty for sins as Satan physically made him suffer for sin. On the cross, God was no longer Christ's father as he took on the nature of Satan. Claims that we can become little gods. This list goes on. You have oneness Pentecostalism, which represents some estimate one-fourth of all Pentecostals who they're called oneness because they deny the Trinity. It's the old heresy of modalism back again. If I'm not mistaken, T.D. Jakes is that way. There's very, various aberrations of the gospel or denials of the gospel or just the absence of the gospel is what you get in the word of faith, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel movement. You have the true gospel of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, forgiveness of sins, the gift of perfect righteousness through faith, new life in Christ. That's replaced, that good news is replaced by better news of your best life now, riches, prosperity, great health. This is why people like Joel Osteen basically affirm universalism, that you know, anybody can be saved if they're good and they believe in God, uh, because that's, that's the greater news, your best life now. Again, the goal here is not to go into vast detail, but to make the simple point. What does it say about this movement where it just has spawned a vast majority of false teaching in the church today since its inception. It's a real problem. And from at least the leadership of the movement, false prophecies, false signs, false healings, false teaching, immoral lives, it doesn't sell me on the movement. It's just not convincing me that this this is a good thing. I'm not seeing a lot of good things come, at least from the leadership of this movement. And I think I can explain why. Number seven, lastly here, the prevalence of experience over truth. The prevalence of experience over truth. I said today, this is mostly, to be fair, some secondary reasons we take issue with the movement. Last week was our two main biblical thrusts. But this last one here is still quite fundamental. The prevalence of experience over truth. And to me, this, pardon me, this really explains the movement overall. It explains the history of the movement. It explains the success of the movement. At a foundational, fundamental level, the Pentecostal and charismatic movements have proven that experience is just as, if not more so, a valid test of truth than scripture. That if, if I feel it, it must be so. If I have an experience, it must be true. Experiences can't be wrong. And they become de facto more authoritative 
than scripture. Even if they don't outright say that, it's just evident in what they teach and what they practice. You can tell them, for example, and I have talked to many like this, my charismatic brethren, you know, you know, tongues in the New Testament, it's not speaking in gibberish. It's always a real human language and or prophecy. Go down the list and I get the same response like, well, yeah, but I had this experience. I felt God's presence. And that's where it ends. You can't argue with that. You can't argue with experience because that's just that that's if that's their authority, it's over. And according to their authority, they felt it must be true. And that's the end of the story. Look, experience is good. Your faith should not be devoid of experience. If it is, you've got a problem. But experience can be wrong, can be deceptive, which is why God calls us to evaluate all things, including our experiences, by the truth of his word, which we believe cannot be wrong and always is our our litmus test. Don't forget, for example, that Pharaoh's magicians recreated many of the same miracles as Moses. This real experience didn't come from God, though. Remember, there are false signs and wonders we're warned against. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Look, the foundation of our Christian faith and practice, the foundation has to be God's written revelation. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all we need for all life and practice. It's, it's complete. It's finished. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. This has to be our ultimate authority. This came by a real work of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the day, look, if, if God decided to send another wave of apostles and prophets performing real signs and wonders to give new revelation. And like I said before, hey, I could see him doing that maybe in the tribulation, for example. Right? I've I've talked about that. If God really did that, okay. Well, everything they say and do must accord 100% with what's already been written. At the very least, it can't go against what's already been written. And at the bottom line of everything we've said is what we see today just doesn't. It just doesn't accord with what's already been written. You can't trade God's written revelation for this new brand of verbal revelation. It's not a good trade. As someone wrote, that's like trading the birthright for uh, the birthright of Scripture for the the lentils of of just subjectivism. When experience is your authority, anything is fair game which leads to a lot of the chaos and the excesses churches see today. And again, here to me, this is what's ironic. There are those mainline charismatic churches. They're very moderate, subtle. You might even attend a church for a long time, not even realize, oh, I didn't know this church believed in all the sign gifts. You don't see anything. And they're very subtle and, and moderate. And those churches, they would even criticize the extremes. They would, they would criticize the Benny Hinn and people like that and, and the holy rollers, people rolling up and down the, the aisles and, and a holy laughter. They would criticize all that. What they don't realize, though, is that their criticism really ring hollow because their own arguments for the sign gifts are based on the same foundation as their criticisms of the extremes, namely experience. Who's to say that those people rolling down the aisles aren't really moved by the Spirit? Who's to say that there's not a new wave of spiritual power that results in holy laughter? How can you say they're really wrong? They have an experience. 
That's how you know you're really prophesying and speaking in tongues, right? It's an experience you feel. How can you really say that Benny Hinn, the Lord didn't really talk to him? Or that Todd Bentley didn't really see heaven, as they all claim, or as he claims, rather. It's just an experience. How can you say his experience is not valid while yours is? Because they have the same foundation. And this is the problem. The whole movement is built on a foundation of sand from its very beginnings of experience. Like we said last week, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not unspiritual. If, just because you're not a charismatic, that doesn't mean you're not spiritual. We're not against experience. We're not afraid or opposed to the wonderful, miraculous sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. We just want to be biblical. And we submit to the truth of God's word and the charismatic movement in belief and in practice just doesn't measure up. At the very least, I've been convinced by, by nothing. I see, read, or hear. Uh, show, me, show me in the word, and I'll believe you. Anything you say, if you can prove to me in the word, I'll believe you. And, and to me at least, my opinion, my test, I have not been convinced. So at the very least, there's part two to the question why we're not a charismatic church. That'll do it for tonight. Made it through just on time. That's actually just fine. So I'll pray. This time, I think I'll, I'll safely say, if you have more questions, you can see me. I'm just going to answer on a case-by-case basis now. We really will get back to it next week. So with that, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. And we confess with Christ that your word is truth. Lord, we, we want to be, like we say often, it's, it's true. We want to be careful. We want to be humble. We don't want to be arrogant, boastful, prideful, as if we know everything, if we, as if we've arrived. We haven't. We're still works in progress. We still need the, the real power of the Spirit to conform us more into Christ's image. We need the Spirit to illumine us, to understand the Scriptures rightly, and to evaluate experience rightly. And so in humility, we confess, Lord, we need your help and your grace to approach these issues. To, to tread carefully and to, to cut your word straight. At the same time, Lord, we've, we've been convinced from your word that what we see going on today just doesn't fit, doesn't accord. We, we pray that you make it clear to, to both sides what the truth is. For our charismatic brethren, we, we love them and, and pray for them. They would see the truth and, and come into a genuine Christian experience and some of the harms that come from this movement. Sure, there may be some goods that come from it, Lord, but... At the same time, that, that never justifies error. We, we just want to be biblical. We want to get it right because we love you, Lord. You're God of truth. And apart from the truth, you, you don't tolerate error. That One cannot find God apart from your truth. Christ himself said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so may we just simply be men and women of the book, a church founded on your word. On this rock we stand and need not be ashamed or fear. Uh, knowing that we can find you, we can know you, and be assured of the truth as it accords to your word. So always keep us founded on the rock of your word, and we pray for your blessing on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.